You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Okay, uh, I do not have a specific passage that we're going to be looking at uh, today. Uh, we're going to stick with the themes of Ephesians, so uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll get right into it. Um, I've been making these little sheets that have all the references that um, I refer to or we look at. I actually put some at the ends of the tables uh, right there uh, by Alan, and so uh, feel free to get up right now uh, and grab one if you want to. Uh, don't be embarrassed, and I'm going to pray as you're doing that because we definitely need God's guidance. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. You are uh, a wonderful God, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing on this island. Uh, we thank you um, for the truths of your word, and we just ask now that we would get this. We need to get this, and I pray that we would, uh, for your sake, uh, for your glory, and the good of your people, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, like I said, we're going to be sticking with the themes of Ephesians, uh, but we're going to expand out a little bit today and further discuss that phrase that's repeated often in the first chapter, uh, first three chapters of Ephesians, that phrase, in Christ or in Him, because this phrase is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. In fact, this past week I was listening to uh, a, a pastor that I really love and respect, and he uh, was kind of advocating for the fact that he would like to see people uh, stop asking the question of, are you a Christian, and switch that to, are you in Christ? Um, and we had, a, we had a, a guy who was over our house, an occupational therapist or physical therapist, and he was helping my 99-year-old father-in-law. And he came by and he said, I, I heard that you pastor a church. And I'm like, yes, I do. And I said, are you in Christ? And he said, yes, I am. And that is what it means. That is how Paul, if you look at his letters, that's how Paul refers to people. He doesn't say uh, these people are Christians. He talks to, uh, refers to them as being in Christ. To just demonstrate this, I want you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 16. This will be the first of many passages that we turn to. If you've been in this church for any length of time, you, knew that we, uh, you know that we do a lot of page turning or uh, tapping on our phones or whatever it is, however you follow along. But this is the end uh, of Romans six, uh, 16. is a chapter where he's just greeting a bunch of people. Listen to how he refers to them. And I'm going to mess up some of these names, so just bear with me. Uh, beginning in verse 3, Romans 16, he says this, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, Greet Adrandicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. They were Christians before me. Verse 8. Greet Amplipetus, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Verse 11, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. And then finally, I love this, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. That phrase, in Christ, is how Paul identifies people who put their faith in Christ. And so what does it mean to be in 
Christ. And that's what I really want to explore with you uh, today. And I want to begin by seeing what Christ has done for us. And the reason we need to start there, because the goal of everything that Christ has done for us was so that he could call out a people to himself and be united with them. We are mainly going to focus in on the New Testament as we talk about what it means to be in Christ. But the foundation for the New Testament people of God actually begins in the Old Testament. And so that's where we're going to begin. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that God often refers to the relationship that he has with his people in terms of a marriage. He uses marital imagery. I want to show you a couple passages. I'm going to ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets. It comes after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. It's a long uh, book. Uh, Verse 16 is where God is talking about how he first met his people. And this is imagery. You'll see it right away. This is not how it actually happened. But he's using imagery to describe his relationship with his people. Beginning in verse 4 of Ezekiel 16, he says this, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, And saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood live. I said to you in your blood live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall. And arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed. And your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That is marriage imagery. I made a vow to you. I entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine and nobody else's. Another passage is the entire book of Hosea. The entire book of Hosea, if you want to turn there, you can turn there. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to point out two verses. It's actually not the one that's on the sheet uh, right now. It says uh, Hosea 11:8, which is a good one, but I changed it. But Hosea Uh, In this whole book, God is comparing the relationship that he has with his people to a marriage. And so in Hosea 2, 19 and 20, listen to this language. This is God speaking. He says this, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You see that three times. You say it over and over again. This is wedding language. Therefore, since our relationship with God is compared to a marriage, 
Anytime the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament started to veer out of that relationship, started to love something more than they loved God, started to like kind of dabble in sin, it was seen as spiritual adultery. I don't have the time to go into this, but if you were to read the end of Ezekiel 16, and I'm just going to give you a warning, it should have a rated R uh, warning on it, because it's very graphic as God describes his people departing from him using sexual terms, because he sees that as adultery. He's not talking that you physically did these things, but he's saying this is what it was like because I'm your husband, and you're cheating on me. In this way. And Hosea is replete with this stuff as well. You see it over and over again that sin against God, rebellion against God, is seen as spiritual adultery. The point is that God views his relationship with his people like a marriage. So the next question we need to ask is, well, how does God view marriage? And the wonderful thing about the Bible is we see God's view of marriage very early on in the Bible. I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible, chapter 2 which is the second chapter in the Bible. The first chapter, God says, uh, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, there was light. Let there be this, there was this. Let there be that. And then in chapter two, he focuses in more on that intimate relationship of creating man and woman. And so he creates a man and he makes him in his image. And the very first thing that God declares that is not good is he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He takes a rib and he fashions a woman. He brings her to the man and the man breaks forth into singing, into poetry and says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And here's what it says at the end of chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The interesting thing about this is Adam and Eve did not have a father or mother, right? He is saying this is the pattern from now on in this marriage and every other marriage that a man leaves his household, a woman leaves her household, and they come together and form a new household. They are made one. They're no longer two individuals. Now they are one. And it's very important. Oh, they still hold on to their individual uh, properties and personhoods. It's not like Adam's personhood was absorbed into Eve's and hers was absorbed into him. But from that moment on, they would forever be identified with each other. Okay, so I normally do not do like visual aids or object lessons, but I'm going to do one today um, because I don't see anything wrong with it in the Bible, and I really, really want you uh, to get this. Okay, so here's what I have. I have here a sheet of paper, and this sheet of paper stands uh, independent of any other sheet of paper or any other objects, okay? It's got all the properties of paper. If you were to observe it under a microscope, you would see that it is paper, okay? This paper stands by itself. Over here, I have a sheet of metal, okay? This metal is independent of anything else, this metal stands by itself. This metal has all the properties of metal. If you were to look at it once again under a microscope, it would be metal. 
Now here's the thing, is that I can hold this metal in my hand without holding this paper in my hand. I can take this metal out of this room. I can take this metal down to the beach later with us and not take the paper with me. They are not connected, okay? But let's say that I took these things, the metal and the paper, and I bound them together with an unbreakable bond of glue. They are now bound together. You have the paper, which still has its characteristics of paper. You have the metal, which still has its characteristics of metal. But now they are identified with each other. So that I cannot hold the paper anymore without holding the metal. And vice versa. I cannot take the paper down to the gulf later on without taking the metal along with it. They are now identified with each other. This is what happens in a marriage relationship. The two start off and they are independent of one another. They are two separate beings. But something happens when they say, I do. Something happens when they make vows to each other. They become legally bound to one another. And they become mystically, spiritually bound to one another as well in the eyes of God. And they are forever identified. I love the practice of when a woman uh, takes the man's name. She is saying that she is losing her identity in him. This does not mean that he has a better identity than her right? It's saying that they are forever now being identified with each other. And everything that happens to them affects the other. For example, if the woman comes across a huge inheritance, right? Like they're, they're scraping by and then some distant relative dies and she gets a huge inheritance. That affects the husband because he becomes wealthy with her. Let's flip it over. Let's say that the, the husband loses his job. That affects the wife as well. Let's say, unfortunately, that there's a, a diagnosis of a debilitating disease. Both are affected. It's not like the, the man says, oh, that's her. That's not me. No, they're affected because they're intimately acquainted with one another. What happens to you affects me. We're one now. They are no longer independence. Well, if the Old Testament is explicit about comparing our relationship, the relationship that God has with his people to a marriage, I would say the New Testament is even more explicit than that. In addition to Jesus telling parables about the kingdom of heaven and referring to it in wedding imagery, we have Paul and others who are even more explicit. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Listen to this. Once again, this is marriage language. He says this, Second Corinthians 11, 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Do you see that? He's not talking about a physical husband. He's talking about a spiritual husband. And let me just touch really quickly on this word jealousy. You read in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, that God is a jealous God. And you're like, jealousy, isn't that a bad quality? When you are bound to someone 
and they seem to be going after someone else or someone else seems to be coming into that relationship, you have every right to be jealous, right? That is a divine jealousy and God does not want anyone moving in on his bride, okay? So uh, God is jealous for us, but we are betrothed to a husband to Christ. If that wasn't explicit enough, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse, beginning in verse 22. This is the great passage about uh, wives and husbands' relationships towards one another. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Listen to this. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then quoting Ephesians, uh, Genesis 2, he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then in case you don't get it, he finishes off by saying, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All this marriage imagery, uh, this language that I'm saying, yes, it does apply to the physical husband, to the physical wife, but see what I'm also talking about. It points to a greater relationship, and that between Jesus and his church. You don't have to turn here, but Revelation 19, verse 7, uh, John says this, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Christ is our husband. We, the church, are his bride. So if you think about it this way, if you combined God finding his people in Ezekiel with Luke chapter 19, 10, where Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, what you have is you have a God who is seeking a wife. You have a God who is seeking a bride. And the Bible is clear that you and I as the church are that bride. Now, if you think about it, we're not a very lovely bride, right? Um, and yet he still loves us. In fact, he loved us so much that he gave his life so that he could be with us and so that he could unite us to himself. Think about it this way. He wanted us to lose our identity in him, and he was happy to share his identity with us. You know, to turn here, just listen to this passage in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4 and 5. This is, I've loved this passage ever since the first time I was introduced to it. This is God speaking. He says this, You shall no longer be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. 
and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. People, that's crazy, right? That is awesome, that God. The imagery is this, right? The, the, the husband is standing there at the front of the, uh, the church, if you will. And then the doors are opened at the back, and there his bride appears. And what happens? His breath is taken away, and he thinks, that's mine. She's mine. She's no one else's. She is mine. And he delights in her. That's what God is saying about us when he sees us, which is crazy, right? He says, that's mine. They're mine. And he delights in us. He loves us. He delights us. Mixing metaphors in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11, Jesus says that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to be identified with us. And you just got to ask, how can this be? Like, I know me, right? I know me. Like, I'd be ashamed to be with me, right? How can this be? Well, we already answered it kind of. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, he said this, that he might sanctify her. He has made us holy. He took us, remember, wallowing in our blood, ugly, and he has made us beautiful. He has made us perfect. He has made us fit to be his bride. So how has he done this? Well, this past week I, I did a study uh, where I looked up all, I looked through all of Paul's letters from Romans to Philemon, and I looked at all, I marked all the mentions of, uh, of the phrase in Christ, through Christ, and with Christ, and then also what Christ has done for us. And I'm not going to go uh, citing all these references. You can go and verify uh, them as you read through it yourself. But let me summarize my findings. Since the goal of what Christ has done for us is to uh, uh, make us one with him, let me begin there, okay? Uh, so what did Jesus do for us? Well, the first thing that he did is he took on our humanity in order to identify with us. The next thing that he did is that he, uh, in his baptism by John the Baptist, is he was identifying with us. He was identifying with sinful humanity. Even though he never sinned, he was identifying with us. Throughout his life, what he did is he suffered persecution and rejection for us. He fulfilled the perfect demands of the law of God for us. He was crucified for us. He died for us. He was buried for us. He rose again for us. And he ascended into heaven for us, where he is seated at the right hand of God, always making intercession for us. In addition to all of this, he gave us his Holy Spirit to guide us and to seal us. And one day he will come back for us so that where he is, there we also may be because he wants to be with us. The result of all of this is so that we could be united to him. I don't know if you've ever heard a guy occasionally will say regarding his wife, he's like, oh, I definitely married up, right? Which is referring to she's out of my league. 
as Christians, as those in Christ, we definitely married up people, right? Uh, because there is nothing desirable in us, spiritually speaking. There's nothing. And yet Jesus still sacrificed everything so that he could be with us. And the result is that we are united to him. Think about it this way. He is stuck with us. He's stuck with us. And that's exactly the way he wants it to be. In fact, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Right before he's about to be crucified, he prays for us. He prays for the disciples who are currently living and then those who would come after them and would believe he's praying for us. And this reveals God's intention for us, his heart for us. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 6 of John chapter 17. Once again, Jesus praying, I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So let me stop there for a second. This has the idea of us being chosen. The Father gave us to the Son. He chose us and gave us to the Son. He reiterates this in verse 9. He says this, uh, 9 and 10, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. People, this is ownership, right? This is ownership. We belong to him. He has laid claim to us. Skipping down to verse 20, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us in 2020, by the way. Um, That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And then he closes in verse 26, and he says this, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Over and over again. I want to be in them. We're in, I'm in you. You're in me. We're in them. Over and over. There is this, we are united. Jesus' desire is to be united with us, to be with us. And this is why throughout Paul's letters, you see that repeated phrase, in Christ, in him. Into Christ, with Christ. You see it over and over again. Do it this week. Mark in your Bible. It's a great exercise to see all that it means to be in Christ. So let's look at the implications of this because I believe that they are very, very important. I want to begin uh, by going back to the illustration that I used regarding the, uh, the metal and the, the paper here. Um, these being one. These being united here. Uh, once again, different substances, metal, paper, independent of one another. They, they maintain their individual characteristics. But as I mentioned before, I cannot hold the metal without holding the paper 
as well. I cannot take the metal uh, somewhere without taking the paper there as well. And so regarding uh, Christ, uh, what does this mean? Well, let me ask you a couple questions here, okay? Uh, The first question I want to ask you is this. As a Christian, were you there when Jesus was crucified? The Bible says that you were. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. So you were there when Jesus was crucified. Let me ask you another question. As a Christian, were you there when Christ was buried? Once again, the Bible says, yes, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6, if you will. Romans chapter 6. We're going to refer to this now and then at the end of the sermon as well. Romans chapter 6. Once again, the question is, as a Christian, were you there when Christ was buried? And here's what it says, Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Okay, so when Christ was buried, you were buried with him. Okay? Let me ask you another question. As, Christian, as a Christian, were you there when Christ was raised? Well, I I think you see where we're going with this now. At the end of Romans 6, verse 4, it says this, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The answer is yes, you were there. You were raised up with him. Once again, you weren't physically there, but spiritually speaking, being united to him, you were there when he was crucified. You were there when he was buried. You were there when he was raised up again. Ephesians 2.6 testifies to this fact as well. Let me ask you another question. As a Christian, were you there when Christ ascended to the Father and is now seated at the Father's right hand? And the answer, once again, from Scripture is yes, you were. Ephesians 2.6 says this, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the final question. As a Christian... Were you there when the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus? And the answer is, yes, you were. Galatians 2.20 once again says you, that we have been crucified with Christ. The only difference is that you and I were protected from the wrath of God. We were shielded from the wrath of God. As the wrath of God was being poured out on him and us being united with him, we were shielded. He absorbed the wrath of God. And we were spared. Let me go back to this once again. Okay. So here's my sheet of paper. Okay. Um, This is the wrath of God. This is the judgment of God. Let me ask you a question. If I take this and apply it to this paper, what's going to happen to this paper? It's going to burn up. I won't do it. Don't freak out, right? Okay. If I were to apply this to this paper, it would burn up. It would not be able to survive that, okay? So what if I were to apply this flame to the metal? Is the metal burned up? It's not burned up. Okay, so now, here's us in Christ. This is us, right? We're united to Christ. 
The wrath of God is being poured out on Christ. And what happens is that he absorbs the wrath of God. This, well, it's got a burn mark. Yeah, Jesus had scars, right? He had his hands, right? His, his feet were pierced. He even showed that after the resurrection. But the wrath of God, he absorbed the wrath of God and we were spared from it because we are in him. He protected us from that. And this is what it means to be united with Christ. We're protected from the wrath of God. But what happened after Jesus died and was buried? He rose again and he ascended into heaven. And he took us with him. Once again, not physically yet. One day physically, but he took us with him spiritually speaking. Using the imagery that I used or the language I used earlier, Christ carries us with him everywhere he goes. Right? Everything that he experienced, he experienced for us. Being crucified, dying, being buried, rising again, being seated in heaven. He carries us along with him every step of the way. Well, let me flip it right here and talk about the other side of this. Do you realize that you also carry Christ around with you everywhere that you go? Do you ever think of that? He is always with you. According to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, I am with you always, always. So what are the implications of this? Well, first let's talk about the positive and the encouraging, okay? Um, he is with you during those hard times, right? The good times and the bad times. He's with you uh, during that encounter with that difficult boss. He's with you. He is with you during that impossible class that you're taking. He is with you, okay? He is with you through those hours of loneliness that you may experience most days of the week. He is with you. He is with you during that test, during that interview, during that big game. And win or lose, secure the job or lose the job, he is with you. You cannot shake him. You cannot get rid of him. He is united with you. But the negative is also true. You take him everywhere you go. You take him to that party that you know you should not be going to. You take him in front of that computer screen where you are about to log onto that pornographic website. You take him into that room with you. You take him into that conversation that you're about to enter in where you are going to slander this other person. You take Jesus right into that conversation with you. You take Jesus into that bedroom where you're going to have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You take him in there with you. Do you realize that you can't do this? You can't say, hey, Jesus... In a, in a couple minutes, I'm about to watch this movie in the living room, which has got a lot of explicit, explicit language and sexual content. It would be better if you just stayed in the kitchen for about the next hour and a half. You can't do that. He goes with you. He sits with you. He watches with you. When you log on to 
Amazon, right? And you're shopping and you're buying stuff that you don't need. He's there with you. You cannot shake him. Let me take it one step further. Let me ask you this first. If we truly understood what it meant to be united to Christ, how would that change the way that we live, right? How would that change the way that we live? Let me take it one step further. The Bible is clear that we're not only united to Christ, we're also united to one another, right? You're united to me, I'm united to you. We are, the Bible refers to us as a body, all right? My body cannot, it's not separated, it's all one. You are united to me, I am united to you. So in a sense, I drag you into the sin that I commit. Now, I am not implying that if I sin, if I lie, that you're going to be held accountable for that. No, you're not going to be held accountable for that. But here's what I mean by that. How many times do we hear about someone on the news, maybe a prominent pastor of a, of a large church who's just been discovered that he's been having a five-year affair with someone in the church, and it brings re- reproach on the name of Christ, and it says, oh, that's what Christians do. That's what you guys do. If someone in this church is involved in illegal practices, embezzling or something like that, it reflects on this church. It reflects on the people who associate with you. You cannot shake me and I cannot shake you. We are united together. And this should be another great motivation for us to live upright lives. When Jesus died, he died to sin so that he might live for God. And the same is true of us. When he died to sin, he died to it for us. Earlier I said we were in Romans 6. I'm going to ask you to turn back there. Romans chapter 6. I want you to to see this. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, he says this. He's talking about the implications of what this means, being united to Christ. How should we then live? What should we do with our our, our sinful tendencies? Here's what he says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And here's the implications that Paul is driving to in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that look like, Paul? Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you, uh, to make you obey its passions. And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you. You have died to sin. Christ paid for those sins. Why would you still live in them? It cost him his life. He died to sin for you. Therefore, consider yourself to be dead to sin. You don't have to obey it anymore. 
When Satan says, do this, say, no, I don't have to. I will not. When he talks about your members, present your members, what's he talking about? He's talking about your eyes, what you see. He's talking about your ears. He's talking about your hands. He's talking about your mouth. He's talking about your feet. He's talking about your sexual organ. And he's saying all these things are to be used in a righteous way for righteous purposes. This is what it means to be united to Christ. It's a wonderful, amazing reality. Let me just give you quickly just a catalog of some other things, realities that are associated with being united to Christ. Jesus had victory over sin. Therefore, us in him, we have victory over sin as well. We've been talking about that. Jesus died to the penalty of sin. Eternal uh, uh, separation from God forever. Therefore, we died to the penalty of sin because we are in him. Jesus died to the power of sin. He never sinned uh, in his life, but he destroyed the power of sin. Therefore, us in him, we have the power to not sin. Jesus is currently reigning and will one day reign We in him are currently reigning and will one day reign with him as well. And Jesus was promised a glorious inheritance and we in him are promised that glorious inheritance. Everything Jesus owns, we own. And Jesus owns everything. We are in him. We are united to him. We are inseparable from him. When he receives the inheritance, we receive the inheritance. When the Father is looking upon him in delight, the Father is looking upon us in delight. Which brings us to our final point, is that Jesus pleased the Father perfectly and therefore basks in the favor and the delight of the Father, experiencing the perfect love of the Father. And because we are in him, we do the same. John 17, you don't have to turn there. We've already read it. It's mentioned often here in this church. Jesus praying to the Father concerning us. Here's what he says. I in them and you in me that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Did you hear that? Because we are so, sep- uh, so bound to Jesus, so united with him, so identified with him, that the love that the Father shows to the Son is the same love that he shows to us. He cannot show love to the Son without showing love to us. He cannot give the Son an inheritance without giving us an inheritance. He cannot sit the Son in the heavenly places without sitting us in the heavenly places with him. We are inseparable from Christ. Beloved of God, we have only scratched the surface of what it means to be in Christ. I want you to think about those things and meditate upon those things this week. Um, As we get into next week, uh, we go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and talk about what it means to be adopted into the family of God, which is an absolutely amazing, amazing reality. Uh, Let's pray. Father... Son, Holy Spirit, we we need to get these things. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just help me to get them. Help everyone in here to get them. And I just pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that is not in Christ, that they would see the beauty of who you are, that you are ready, that you're standing there waiting to make them fit for heaven, to take away all their sins. And that you love them. I ask that you would do this for your sake. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.